Welcome to the Common Humanity Podcast, where we're here to have real human conversations. Today, we have Emily Hedrick. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. I know it's been 30 seconds. I almost, I was like, I forgot it already. Um, we have Emily Hedrick here with us today. And Emily, I want to know, who are you? <laughs> well, I'll start with role, I guess. Okay. So at the moment, I am a... Um, compassion fatigue coaching consultant and I also specialize in health and wellness for trauma and even more specific religious trauma Um, and who I am beyond that is a fellow human Um, I use she her pronouns I like enjoying life and being poetic about things that sometimes we can be a little bit more regimented about or just ignore so that makes me super happy (laughs) Um, i feel like we would get along Uh Um, how do you feel about metallic beetles they're kind of cool there are times when i like hang out in more natural settings and i notice colors and i'm like Holy shit, somebody just come up, well, nobody came up with it, according to me, but like, this exists, this color exists in the world without us having to like, make it into plastic. This is amazing. Okay, so this is a thing that I've always wondered, because like, light, okay, color is light refracting off of other things, right? But we all see color a little bit differently. And none of us actually know if the color that somebody else is seeing is the same color we're seeing. So like, we both might understand the same thing as orange, but for one of us, it might look like a, like, you can't even reference anything. Cause if one orange looks the same to you as somebody else, like have you ever thought about the concept that maybe your orange is somebody else's blue? And you know, I think- Or no. I think that actually is some delightful commentary on what it means to be connected to other people and how our perceptions are actually shaped by each other as much as they are by our own experiences. Yes, 100%. That makes... This is going to be a great conversation. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, let's, let's start there. Will you dive a little bit more into what you just said and how... Um, like what it means to be connected as part of humanity. Hmm. Well, I think that human connection is one of the most powerful things in the world. And it's the first thing we lose when we have trauma. Um, and that's part of what makes trauma so debilitating. Um, so yeah, I. so both perception and common humanity are big pieces of the the trauma conversation and it might seem a little bit weird since i kind of led with i'm a compassion fatigue coach and consultant but what people often don't know about compassion fatigue is that trauma is an element of it that it's burnout which has been a very common phrase and word for people to be using especially lately Mm -hmm. Um, even before the pandemic there were a lot of people that were burning out for a variety of different reasons. But if you add that to secondary traumatic stress of recognizing that 
we don't have to have something traumatic happen to us directly in order to experience traumatic stress. All we have to do is watch it or hear about it. And our, if our bodies respond with a, with a threat response, uh, we're experiencing secondary traumatic stress. And that's, I think, all about connection. Um, but at the same time, it then teaches us to be scared of the same things that other people that have hurt other people, even when they're no longer relevant. Oh, I, um, I think one of the things when it comes to burnout, um, pre-COVID, I would say there were people who recognized burnout, but it was less expected to burnout. Mm. And then, like, once society as a whole was like, holy fuck, I don't know how to go on, then it was like, okay, everyone who's been burnt out for years, you're allowed to be burnt out now because not everyone else has a similar experience, and so they can relate to it better. Okay, okay yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to be a little ornery and then throw in secondary traumatic stress here, too, because what is our experience collectively of the pandemic if not it, it can be primary traumatic stress for sure but also for many of us we hold up in our homes we knew we were safe there but we also knew that other people were not safe other places mm -hmm. and we knew that that also applied to us and so i think the fact that it still applies to us could put us into primary trauma territory but um i do think a lot of what many of us have experienced, especially as there have been all kinds of arguments about how people are supposed to respond to safety issues, um, is that secondary traumatic stress of, well, maybe I'm fine, maybe I'm not immunocompromised, but I know people who are, and my body is going to feel stress for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exhausting. <laughs> 100%. And it's like, on the one hand, I think that it it shows our our ability for compassion and empathy but and compassion and empathy are fantastic amazing skills to have but when like anything that's that's pushed upon us that we're not ready for i feel like can have a, a traumatic response to it so mm -hmm. I refer to empathy as a skill because there are some people who are very naturally empathetic. My seven-year-old is, he's so empathetic. It hurts my heart because I have to teach him that he does not have to feel what others are feeling. Mm -hmm. And it, he has to be able to hone it as a skill and not just his natural response because that will lead him to like, overexposing himself to getting hurt to burning out because when you feel everything that everybody else is feeling it's a lot so you have like learning how to convert that into a skill that you can whether it's turn on and off or turn up and down on the dial and say okay i i can actively give my time and energy and my compassion to somebody and actively pull back when i need to I think that is a protective factor that I don't think a lot of people learn. Like, um, but it's 
it's imperative because you can have too much of a good thing. And I think sometimes we forget that healers also get hurt and being able to, um, like when you're the one hurting and you need support, it's very difficult to be like, okay, I, I'm going to stop asking for support. Cause I can tell that you can't handle it right now. But like, I think these are a lot, all a lot of skills that we can learn to help, help us get through life with as little, we'll just go with trauma as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, I'm a firm believer, like no one gets through life without being traumatized. Like everyone has something that they're dealing with. And this, I don't know what word to use here. I'll use sad. The sad part about trauma is that the same thing could happen to 10 different people and 10 different people are going to respond differently. Mm -hmm. Someone that could cause some big T trauma for someone. It could cause some little T trauma to someone else. They don't even remember it happened because it meant nothing to them. And whenever I've talked about trauma, it like, I always try to bring up into conversation that idea that like trauma isn't what happens, but it's how your body reacts to what happens. Mm-hmm. And you can learn coping skills. You can learn mechanisms that most of us aren't taught in our youth by any means. Um, but you don't get to decide what traumatizes you or not. And I think that's one of the scariest things about trauma. You know, it's interesting hearing you say that. I think that's certainly the case for a lot of um, people's personal experiences and things they don't choose, things they don't expect. What's weird with helping professions is that people do choose them. And in fact, they choose to go into what I would describe as toxic environments um, on purpose. And that brings a completely different element into play because instead of this being, this happened to you and you had no control, Mm -hmm. it's, this is something that you chose because of your values of who you are and who you want to be in the world. And if that's the case, it can absolutely be prevented with the right skills. Um, One of the things that I often think about related to compassion fatigue and the trauma element of that is, is, is simply that Um, there are some toxic work environments that are just inherently toxic because of the work, not even because anyone did anything wrong. Um, I, I think about my time as a hospital chaplain and I remember about halfway through my time as I was feeling exhausted doing that work, I realized, oh, I work on the physical trauma floor. Um, 90% of the people I interact with are in crisis and my body, if without the right skills, believes that I'm in crisis along with them. But in fact, I signed up for this. I signed up to be with people in crisis. And so if I am able to hold on to both that that boundary of, hey, I chose to do this. I want to be here. And I'm not in crisis, even if everyone around me is. I'm safe right now. Uh, That really changes how my body responds to the environment. I... 100% agree. Um, Real quick, out of curiosity, how would you define safety? Both for 
myself and as a general in general so this is a great question thank you um so i never guarantee safety when i work with groups because everybody's triggers are the same or i mean are different sorry are different and so what feels safe to one person might not feel safe to another however that's that's the operative term feel uh we can feel safe or we can we can feel safe and not be safe that's kind of scary but we ultimately with trauma is when we feel like we're in danger even though we are not and so that's where the definition of safety really matters because ultimately for i i approach trauma from a very functional perspective of what's going to help you best get through your life right now and when it comes to the things that come online when we perceive threat um they, you might get 15 to 20 seconds of super juice out of it but any any longer and actually you're going to be faster smarter and better equipped if your prefrontal cortex is online and it disappears the moment that we be, um have a dominant fight flight response so safety then is basically a question of is something happening right now that can kill me right now this moment that's what that that's the question of determining whether or not I'm safe. And if not, then I'm safe. That is so that's a very simple answer. And mm -hmm. I love the word simple because there's so many things in life that are very simple and they're some of the most difficult things to attain. Yes. So and I think especially so when it comes to trauma whether it's like i'll talk about in a healing journey kind of sense like on your healing journey like healing is is relatively simple you do the work you put in the time and effort you move through you as i like to put it feel your shit it is simple like the steps you, you lay out the steps in front of you and it's simple to do but it is some of the hardest work that anyone could ever do because it is not, especially, especially when we're talking trauma, it is not easy to say, this is something that has changed the way that I interact with the world and within myself and everything around me. And I'm going to go toe to toe with it and see where it comes from and see like, what buttons that it actually pushes and why and start to unravel those things so that you can feel safe again because so you don't know me um i have ptsd or cptsd or however you want to put all of it um cheers <laughs> um and there have been times in my life where it has just been like I, I don't know why I'm reacting the way I do. And I don't have control over it. Like the fight and flight took over and I like, I lost control of the, the rudder. I'm not steering at all. I got like, I got nothing. I just have to make it through the ride and it's terrifying, but taking the step to face that and say, okay, how do I gain control over my own neurological systems again and then you do years of therapy and all all sorts of different things that 
um, you know, you sit with someone, you find, find someone who you trust and feel safe with so that you can go like, I always have these conversations. I am personally not a big fan of quiet meditation for myself because it can be very scary. Guided meditations I can do if there's somebody with me or doing quiet meditations with my therapist so that if I start dissociating, I have someone who's like, hey, you don't seem like you're in the room anymore and can pull me back because a big chunk of it is I don't trust myself or I spent a good chunk of time not trusting myself because when I trusted myself, I got hurt. And then, you know, you have to learn all of that again. And so it is, it's the best work you can do, but some of the hardest work you can do, but coming back to it, the process is simple but simple things are very difficult to attain. So um, I really like your, your simple definition of safety is am like, am I in threat of dying right now? Because if that's not the case, you have options. Mm -hmm. And that's an exciting concept is that you have options. Yeah. Yeah, it opens up a whole world. Um, I said cheers because I have also dealt with at least uh, to be clinically correct, I'll call it complex post-traumatic stress. I I don't know. I don't know what my therapist diagnosed me with. It was some form of trauma. It was probably, well, you can't diagnose CPTSD unless you use the ICD-11. So it was probably just PTSD. But yes, I am of the complex ilk um, by nature of the religious part. But um, yeah. Yeah. And I think the other hopeful thing, so in my journey in, in coaching, of course, coaches aren't really supposed to touch trauma. Right. Um, except that <laughs> I've seen so many coaches talking about it. Also, I'm a coach that works with trauma. Um, and in my journeys of finding, finding out how to do this responsibly, I actually encountered a traumatologist that has been, he basically says 80% of his work with clients can be done um, in a peer-to-peer format. And his approach to, his name's Eric Gentry, um, and his approach to uh, trauma is called forward-facing. And the idea is you don't have to go back to all the memories with the therapist. You don't have to have all of these really intense sessions. Really, here's another simple for you. Um, Resolving trauma involves confronting triggers in a relaxed body. If you can figure out how to do that, you can do it on your own in everyday life. And it's the relaxed body part that's crucial and that has been missing in trauma treatment over the 20th century. Um, Except for in hypnosis, oddly enough. Hypnosis was like the thing back in the 1800s when they were um, studying trauma. And then over time, uh, it disappeared. It got replaced with a lot of things, especially cognitive behavioral therapy. But for a long time, it was flooding and implosion, which sound terrible and are and often involve re-traumatization if you can't stick it out to the end. And these are things that therapists were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to to help people learn how to be comfortable in their own skin, to to relax the muscles in the body, which is different than just like meditation and going to sleep um but is it can be an everyday act of 
two seconds at a time regularly can completely transform a life. It, it takes a person from being in that constant threat response and having no choices to being able to physically get themselves into a place of choice within about five seconds, as often as they can remember. And the remembering is the hard part. Yes. Um, I think so to me, that's, I had a coach who, who helped me uh, replace my electricity. So he was like, you have an on off switch. Like, can we, can we turn it into a dial? Is it something that you can mm. dial those, those like hyper awareness when you're in threatening situations so that you, you have a better sense of safety and you are more aware of what's happening in your surroundings and turn it down when you're in a safe place. Because when it's an on off switch, like it's hard not to have it flipped on. Like you hear a noise and it's on and like the dog barks and it's on and it's it's a lot harder to turn it off once it's on but if you turn it to the dial you're like okay we turn it up okay it was it was the wind we're fine we can turn it back down um but helping gauge that like not okay. not every single moment is life and death and i think that i think that's the hardest part for me from a survivor is how much of my life I've only survived yeah in the simplest tasks were just like I just have to make it through this so that I'm alive again and like that was like mm -hmm. the only goal and mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a nice base goal to be alive and kicking but there's so much more out here to enjoy like there's so much poetry in life that is difficult to see when all when when the whole world is a threat. Yes. Um I want to know what random what is the most poetic thing in your room right now? Ooh. There's a tiny part of me that wants to say my snoring dog. Um, and maybe I will, maybe I will say my snoring dog. She's 15. She's a, well, she's almost 15. In January, she'll be 15. She's a, in Australian Shepherd Rough Collie mix. And I think her commitment to me and our life together is very poetic. I would agree. <laughs> I don't even know her and I agree. <laughs> yeah. She has really bad hips and um, there's just two steps to get up into my office. And earlier today I had to help her up because she was so committed to her job. She needed to be with me and she couldn't get there. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to turn a little bit because I'm curious. So you also um, coach in the line of religious trauma. Mm -hmm. So first, what is your, in the nutshell at the very least, story on that? What is your experience that led you to say, I 
I need to help people who have been through similar, or I need to help people in this particular realm? Well, um, I grew up in uh, an evangelical fundamentalist version of being Mennonite. Mennonite can mean a variety of things to people, but it's very, the version I grew up in was actually pretty mainstream. Um, and um, I had a bad experience when I was 17 that shattered my understanding of the world. I had asked a pastor if I could at my home church that I loved and contributed a lot of blood, sweat and tears to if I could preach a sermon, knowing he'd say no. And he did say no. And then he offered to explain to me why I assumed it was because women weren't supposed to be pastors, but that was not the case. Um, it was a direct attack at me and my character, which I believed. And that's the thing that um, really got me was that I believed him because he had used religious language that I cared about. And so I just was taken along for the ride. And I was able to piece together a few hours later that I just swallowed hook, line and sinker everything he said about myself, things I knew. Um, and that shattered my perception of safety. It made me realize that I could get into a conversation with any human and have them take control of my thoughts, my self-perception, my identity. And I didn't know what safety meant after that. And it was really difficult for me to explain it to people because I, I left that whole experience with an enduring belief in God. And so most people that I encountered that were like, oh, you're having faith problems. It must mean that you're doubting. And I kept saying, no, no, it's not that I'm doubting. It's that this God that I believe in is getting worse and worse and kind of abusive. And I'm scared all the time. And, um, and I didn't have words for that. And I didn't have words for that for a long time until I found the existence of religious trauma and started to research it. And that's been, a, I've discovered that's finding words has been a big thing for a lot of people. Um, and so I've, I've done my own research trying to articulate what happened to me. And of course, things developed after that. I got into pastoring and then burnt out. This is how we got to compassion fatigue. Um, but uh, one of the things that I was really hoping to do, even while I was pastoring, was help people with these abusive God images and really terrible experiences in church institutions to heal. And what I ultimately discovered from pastoring was that being a pastor itself brought up my own religious trauma. I was my own trigger the whole time I was pastoring because it was dangerous for me as a woman to be a pastor. How dare I do such a thing? And even if I could get over whether or not I was allowed to do that, um, there was, well, you should expect everyone to be ready to attack you because they're going to think this is wrong. And so some of that was a little bit of secondary trauma from other other women pastors that I heard stories from. Um, but anyway, all that being said, what I realized is you cannot heal trauma when you're still unsafe. And for a lot of people, being in churches is, is dangerous. And in the very least feels dangerous. And so there's no way in hell I could do that kind of work as a pastor. Um, I also was an atheist as a pastor, so that was complicated. That's another story. 
Um, but, but, is it short? (laughs) (laughs) What? I said, that sounds like an interesting story. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, yes, a large part of that was just me going and saying religion is beautiful. Religion is poetic and it's also toxic. And is there any way that we can make it not toxic so it can keep being beautiful and poetic? And the answer for me personally is, oh, actually, the whole reason I was doing all of that was because I was experiencing trauma and attempting to control my environment. Um, So so I'll let others figure that one out. Um, At least when it comes to Christianity, it was never a good fit for me. I just thought I had to make it a good fit because I thought I was going to (laughs) die. So, yeah, yeah, it's reasonable at the time. I, um, so one of the experiences will, will go with similarly, but it wasn't about me. Um, it was at a time when I was already pretty aware of my lack of belief. I was raised Catholic, um, and I was an altar server. I like very, very active in the church. Um, and my sophomore year of high school my best friend who was beloved by everybody uh took his own life and it was deeply saddening and i was already very much probably questioning at the time what my belief system or what my beliefs were um and the week it happened the father who everybody loved him. He was great. Like to this day, people still speaks very highly of him said, you know, he, he made a mistake and he's going to hell. And it's just really sad that he made this choice. And like, it's just like, my brain is like, okay, you know, that you're not the one who passes judgment. You know, you're not the one who decides who goes, which direction, like that is, that's God's job. If you believe in God, but also to have someone who I did trust, right? Because it's one of those things that it's someone that you you give time and effort and part of yourself to when you are a participant in the church. And he told me, he told the congregation that my best friend was a sinner who was going to hell because he was bipolar and schizophrenic and lost his war with mental health. And I was pissed and I was more like, I was pissed at him for saying it. And I was more pissed at the handful of my friends and my brother who ate it up. And they were like, he was bad. We couldn't do that. And I'm like, he was so much more than those four sentences that that priest just said. And all of you so it made me very, very angry. And I, I think after that point in time, I never trusted that priest again. Like I went through the motions. I was still an altar server because there was a whole lot of um, guilt and fear in my family that if I wasn't religious, like I'm 34 and I've only spoken to my mom briefly about not being religious a couple of times we don't talk about it because because then she has to pray for me um 
Whereas like, usually I walk around and I like, I'm like, I'm a heathen. Tell people I'm a heathen. And then one of my favorite things that I just find hilarious is that I'll tell my Christian friends that I'm a heathen. And they're like, no, no, no. Don't say that about yourself. Like you are not. I'm like, no, no, I am. Like heathen by definition is, does not believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah. Like that's what a heathen is. I don't believe that. Thus I am a heathen. And they're like, but heathens are bad people. I'm like, no, you have been taught that heathens are bad people because they don't have the same belief system as you. Like the only people who think heathens are bad are Christians. Heathens don't think the heathens are bad. We have our own belief system. We have, we, whether you have pagan beliefs or just general spiritual beliefs, like we have beliefs. Everybody has a belief system, whether it is defined by God or not. You, you can't make it through life without a belief system. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always something I think is funny because I'm like, what you've been taught is bad, is not inherently bad, just because it's not. Yeah, it's leftovers. Yep. So, um, so how, how then, so you went through this process of being a pastor and trying to help people in, in that realm um, of healing the trauma, realized that it was impacting your trauma as well, but you are still a coach in religious trauma. So what does that look like for you today? So I work with people that have left for the most part. Um, I actually do have a bigger propensity than some of the other colleagues I've had in this area to work with people that still are looking for healthy God relationships because while I don't personally seek a relationship with a God, um, I did spend eight years of my life studying theology and religion and love talking about it yeah. and, and love the poetry of like ultimately when we talk about God and theology, we're playing with our perceptions of the world. And if we can get some really good, positive, helpful perceptions going on, it doesn't matter if they're true or not. If they're functional, good. Because mm -hmm. um, you could even say this about trauma. I'm getting a little philosophical here, but like what? Defining safety is tough if you have anything other than like functionality in mind, because when it comes down to it, there's always going to be something out there that could be a problem. Yeah. I could be sitting in this room and there are like toxins everywhere that I'm breathing in that'll give me cancer 10 years down the line. I, and that would make me unsafe right now. But when it comes down to it, I'm going to have a better chance fighting all of that off if I've been in a relaxed body this whole time and haven't worn my body out being, being in fight flight this for 10 years. So, you know, I, I'm more on that functional path, but when it comes straight down to it, we have to decide what perceptions we're going to be operating with. And hmm, let me just take this all right, full round back. One of the big things of um, healing from burnout in particular is working with perceptions, um, a process called perceptual maturation. And it's not something you can do if you're, if you don't start in a relaxed body, um, <laughs> you have to learn the relaxation, acute relaxation skills first. Um, and then you can do perceptual maturation. Otherwise it'll just piss you off. But, um, anyway, what this looks like with religious trauma, um, basically there are people that have left 
controlling religions. Um, and it could have been decades ago and still struggle with certain mental health issues, have seen a lot of therapists, have tried to explain even like if they've caught on, not everybody catches on right away that religion might be a factor in this, mm -hmm. but if they've caught on and try to explain it to a therapist, therapists aren't trained in religious trauma. It's not how that works um, because um, we haven't done the empirical research yet. But um, so I tend to work with people for whom if I'm going to put it in like a trite way, um, religious trauma is when our bodies believe in hell longer than our minds do. So it doesn't matter if you got over all of that old terrible theology. If your body still thinks you're going to hell every time you do X thing and it responds accordingly, you're going to be in threat response a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's going to change your life for the worse. Um, and so people start to notice that and they start to look for help and resources and what i've been told by my clients is that yes i'm not a therapist but working with me has gone faster for quite a few of them than work they've done with a therapist because they don't have to explain everything um, trying to convince someone that has not grown up in a toxic religion the significant impact it can have on your entire life especially how it infiltrates your psyche mm -hmm. is it's it's a tough job i really hope that over time, mental health education includes religious trauma because, wow, it could help a lot of people. For sure. And there's so many, I mean, there's so many varieties of religion and mm -hmm. there's a couple of things that to me, like there's pros and cons to all of it. Like it is, it's a baseline belief system that you can be taught and can give you a space to have, you know, similar beliefs as other people. And it's fantastic in that sense. Um, but most of them, even if they're not, you know, the, the overly toxic ones that we all kind of jump to, they're about controlling. They're about controlling a group of people's perception of the world. And it, I know one of my issues with religion is the concept of indoctrination which I think is in pretty much all religions because they're the, the goal of a religion is to teach all of their followers their, their way of seeing things and not like I raised my kids to be secular. And so like my mom or little brother will talk about God and they they'll say things about God. And I'm like, well, some people believe this and some people believe this. And at the end of the day, the goal is, that someday you will decide what you believe. And it does not have to be the same thing your brother believes. It does not have to be the same thing I believe. Because at the end of the day, our belief systems are going to be very individual because each one of us has lived an entirely different life as the person next to us. So and I, yeah, I find this interesting. I am going to take a more poetic approach to religion. Partially because I, I think indoctrination is a really big part of cults and it's a really big part of fundamentalism. And there are fundamentalist versions of all of the major religions. It's, it's a spectrum for sure. Um, but I would say that there's also this piece to, if we think about the information humans have had over time, 
we have a lot of information now. It gives us amazing amounts of freedom to pick which stories we want to tell about the world. But if you're talking about people that do not have all of, all of the technology and things we have available to us now, who look up at the sky and say, tell me what these bright lights are. Can you give me a story? This is where religion begins. Right. And I think that's beautiful. I see. Um, I, was, I was even going to say that because I think there's another, there's the poetic side of religion. Like I also love studying theology but when you were talking earlier you were it reminded me of math like I, religion and math and science are all the same in the sense that they are one way that as humans we have tried to understand the world around us and it is it's how so people who were we'll say more poetic you know, they looked at the stars and they told a story and they said, this is how, this is how we came about. This is how the world created itself, that this scientists looked at the stars and they looked at the, the atoms and the molecules and how that all created math started calculating it. And it all comes together. And like, this is, we are all just these creatures trying to understand why the hell we ended up on this planet in the middle of space and what that can mean for us and what that can mean for everyone around us. Yeah. And I think that's part of why religion and math and science have been intertwined at different times. Like the, the separation of them is a post enlightenment thing mm -hmm. um, and somewhat new. And I, I think the other thing that's worth noting since we're talking about trauma mm -hmm. is that a lot of what we've learned about healing trauma is that it needs to be body-based. And a lot of what has happened over time, especially as Christianity became a force of colonialization and oppressed many, many groups of people saying, you need to follow this religion, forget yours, mm -hmm. is that we've erased a lot of the practices that I honestly believe that religion helped people resolve trauma for a very long time and still does when it's done well. And that psychologists are just catching up and they're doing it through a scientific lens, which is very different than we've practiced this and we see that it works. Um, as opposed to we're gonna like kind of look minutely at all of the tiny little intricate details on the physical level of why all of these things um, make sense. But I think even now in, in some of the most cutting edge treatments for trauma, they can sound similar. Even things like EMDR, a big piece of, of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is bilateral stimulation. Think of how many religious practices have involved bilateral stimulation and how many of them have now been suppressed over time. Um, so it, it's complicated. <laughs> it's it's so complicated um but it's fun yeah i think that was the the one i thought about when you mentioned um hypno hypnosis hypnosis i can never say this word um because that's i mean that's that's the therapy that i use on a regular basis like literally was doing that hour ago um and it's it has that, I mean, if you think about someone hypnotizing you and you watch something move back and forth and you're doing the same thing with the light, 
or with buzzers or with tapping, you have all of these things. And it is, it is what it's like, it relaxes your brain enough to. Yes. Like, it helps you confront it. triggers in a relaxed body. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it does. And um, I think, I mean, we can talk about this in all sorts of facets, but I think in general, things were like uh, fashion recycles itself. Science recycles itself. Um, religion was like, I think everything, like we go through these phases through humanity where like we have something figured out and it's working. And then someone's like, I'm not sure that that's working anymore. And then someone rediscovers it 50 years later and calls it by a different name. And, but it's, it's the same process. Like there are, we'll call them superfoods, right? People talk about superfoods all the time. People are like, oh, we just discovered this thing. No, you didn't just discover this thing. Like people have been eating this for centuries. And like you just discovered how to transport it into a different climate. So other people who don't live in the Amazon can eat it. Sure. But that's not the same thing. Is it like, it's not new. It's, it's basic. Like it's simple so much like, it will take, we're just gonna take it back to that word. So much of everything that we do is so simple. And I feel like we overcomplicate it a lot because I feel like we want there to be more, like, like if it's more complicated, it makes, it makes more sense if it's more complicated because to say that life is as simple as we exist and we're worthy of existing and we're worthy of happiness. Like we have to complicate that with like, we need to like pay for food and rent and all of these things that they don't have to be that complicated, but we made them that way because I feel like as humans, sometimes we feel more comfortable in chaos than we do in calm. Said like a true CPTSD survivor. <laughs> so before we jump into our little game, do you have anything else that you want to make sure gets heard? Um, no, I think we did pretty good. All right. Okay. Right hand or left hand? Right. All right, your first question. Name at least three things or activities that bring you joy in life. All right. Fiddling. Oh, nice. Um, being outside in good weather. <laughs> um, what does good weather look like for you? It is not attacking my body. It's so not too cold. It's not too hot. Oh, okay. So like, but are you not too cold? Not too hot is like 65 or like 85. Cause yeah. Anywhere in between those. Okay. okay. Um, swimming. Like fun. Well, like splashing around swimming or lap. Just swimming? no, just splashing around swimming, just being immersed in water, letting water hold me. Nice. All right. 
Okay, my first question. Name a couple of songs or performers you like and why. Oh my god. Uh, favorite you're so hard. Um, I'll do an easy one. Frank Turner. Everyone should listen to him. He's amazing. He is a punk folk artist. Interesting. Uh, yes. And I I love his brain. I love the words he makes. I love how poetic he is. Um, I love how he can, like, be, like, fuck the man in one song and then, like, write about historical people and be very folky in the next song. And it just, it just, it makes me happy. And he makes me happy. So, um, Frank Turner. Let's see. I only do get to do a couple. Um... Who do I want my next one to be? We'll do a song next. Um, the song Savage Daughter. Um, because it fills me with joy. And I feel like it represents me a lot. I take a lot of pride in my Norse heritage and um, kind of going back in time in in my beliefs versus the beliefs of my family and um when I first heard it I was like yeah I am my mother's savage daughter and I'm a heathen I'm I'm good with that and it I take a lot of pride in in feeling more one with nature than um and nature and intuition and just being one with the world around me versus the colonized way of thinking. So that song really like hit my heartstrings when I heard it. So there's various versions, but the original, and it's just the harm, the harmony is just like blows my mind. <laughs> so Okay, question two. State a personal limitation, as in I am always late, then say it again with the prefix up until now. So first- Oh God, okay. There's a second part, but we'll start there. So what is your personal limitation? <laughs> um. I always get too sleepy to be disciplined about things at night. Like, don't give me a bedtime routine. I'm already asleep by then. Okay. So if you change that to up until now. Mm-hmm. I am always too sleepy mm -hmm. to whatever, like be productive at night. Mm -hmm. Does that make you feel like that limitation can be overcome? Maybe I, I'll qualify to say up until now, I'm always too sleepy to, to do self-care at night. Okay. Um, that, that's probably a good way to put it. 
maybe, I don't know. This is something I've been working on, but my um, changes in routine are slow. I, I focus on one thing at a time. So that might be two things down the road. <laughs> awareness. Yeah. That's key to pretty much everything. <laughs> okay. Um, my next question, how different was your life one year ago? Um, we'll just go with insanely different. Um, maybe not so much. If I went back a year and a half, my life was insanely different. Um, I'm just over a year past like quitting my full-time job and doing gig work and putting myself and my health and my mental well-being in front of everything else. And so a year ago, I was very new to this concept of I matter. And I was like three weeks in to eating disorder recovery. And I had just powerlifted, like done my first powerlifting competition ever. And now I feel like 95% like relatively confident in my body and my eating habits. And I'm competing at a national meet for the first time this weekend. And I can recognize when I'm burning myself out and I can step back and I can decipher when it is necessary to give as much as I have to give and when it is necessary for me to keep my energy for myself. And I think that, that those, all those little things are a huge change in me internally, even though my day to day hasn't changed that much. Hmm. Yeah. Your last question. What is something you would like to say to your younger self if it were possible and at what age? <sighs> I would tell myself at 27 or 28, now I have to remember, 27. You don't have to get married, please quit your job and move in with your boyfriend. That's another story. Yeah. Also sounds like a good story, but that, that's, follow-up question out of curiosity, would you have listened to yourself? Yes. Damn it. I don't know why no one in my life told me that was possible. So if they did and I missed it, then that's my perception issue. Yeah. But everybody was so thrilled about it that they didn't think about why I was doing it. Yeah, I think... There, there's a lot of whether they're expectations 
like there's the expectations to the outside, but then like things that people just view as normal. And then when you like, you don't question when it's not everybody's path or that everybody's path isn't supposed to be the same. Mm -hmm. People are just very accepting, even though, even if they think that it's not where they're supposed to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, my last question. What is something that happens now that you think people in 20 years will look back at in disbelief? <sighs> um, I would hope um, things like racism and sexism and just you know the hatred that people have for each other that they make so apparent I would hope that that would be something that in 20 years people can look back and say really like you guys were really that (laughs) close-minded um that's that's a hope that I, I I honestly don't have a lot of hope for um, but something, I mean, it'd be easy to say anything that has to do with technology. Um, but probably that we all, like, so many people worked nine to fives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that it was like, like people were just okay with just growing, growing up, going through school, getting a job and doing the same mundane thing every day without any passion for it. Because I think that's a big shift that is happening with younger generations where they realize that their life and their time is more important than making a buck. And more important than especially making a buck for somebody else. So I think that that's a big shift that's going to happen. And people are going to be blown away that for hundreds of years, we were just slaving away for somebody else for minimum wage. Yep. But yeah. All right. So that has been the Common Humanity Podcast. Thank you for having a real human conversation with me. Um, Remember to check the show notes so that you can see how you can um, find Emily and get in touch if that is something that you choose to do. And we will see you all next time.